So I'm going to start a little bit out of left field, okay? I want to uh, draw your attention, if you can, just in your mind, I want you to think of Genesis 1. Now, whether you're a believer or not, you're probably familiar with Genesis 1. Uh, coming on the scene is creation. Now, usually when we talk about Genesis 1, it has some kind of conversation about, uh, you know, old earth or young earth or whatever it is. But I actually want to meditate, if, if we could for a second, on the one who's making all of those things, okay? So usually we're thinking about the beauty of how God made the trees and, and the stars and the mountains and all that stuff. But sometimes we don't step back and go, what Genesis 1 actually says about the God who makes all those things. And what you find, if we sit on that idea for a second long enough, we find this all-powerful, um, sovereign, benevolent God just showing off, flexing with how big of a deal he is that he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And we as believers go, yes and amen. I mean, this God is a big deal. Nobody reads Genesis 1 and goes, I don't know, God might kind of be a big deal. He, I guess he's kind of powerful. When you make everything out of nothing, you, you are a big, benevolent, awesome God. And so when we, we read this in Genesis 1, we see uh, who this God is, and now we have under, that understanding as a foundation. It's weird because as the story goes on, this big God who does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, he supplies to the, the uh, part of his creation that is made in his image this ability to communicate. He puts a, a system in place for him, this big God. Just imagine this big God who made all the things we see in Genesis 1. He puts a system in place to be able to communicate with his created beings, i.e. human beings. And, and, and what you find, there's this space in this system that humans can come to him now and express grievances. They can express gratitude. They can come to him and say, uh, Lord, why are you doing this and asking questions? And even more bizarre than that, he responds. Now just think about that for a second. The big God in Genesis 1 responds to his creation through the system that he puts in place. And it's not that he just responds, he changes his mind. Now, immediately some of you guys are, oh gosh, what did you just say? I hold to the doctrine of immutability, relax, okay? Um, I believe God is unchanging without question. And yet the reality is the doctrine of immutability does not butt up against or push against the system that God has put in place. I mean, you and I, at least as believers, those of you who are believers in here, are examples of using and leveraging this system that this all-powerful God who does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, we've leveraged this system before because we, according to Ephesians chapter 2, again, Elise came up here and said, we, we were um, ch children of wrath. We were destined for hell. And yet we called on Jesus to save us. And now we're not destined for hell. Now there's a lot goes into, obviously, being a Calvinist, holding to the doctrine of regeneration that I believe in, but the reality is very similar to the people of Nineveh there is judgment coming, but because we leverage this system, talk to this awesome big God, he changed um, everything that was to happen according to what we wanted, our sinful nature. He changed that because of his good grace. He, he responds to that. As a matter of fact, Grudem, Dr. Grudem uh, at Phoenix Seminary, he says this, we pray and God responds. If we really were convinced that prayer changes the way God acts, and that God does uh, bring about remarkable changes in the world in response to prayer, as Scripture repeatedly teaches uh, that, he, that he does, then we should pray much more than we do. If we pray little, it is probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. Now, prayer obviously is the definition of the system I'm putting in front of us, and that's actually the topic that I want to put in front of you. I'm, I'm not a big fan 
of preaching the same sermon twice or three times. Spurgeon warns against, against this and lectures to my students. But um, when we started the new year at Pella, I had the opportunity where we had a standalone from Matthew. And this is what I talked to our church about. And I, I text Rich and I said, hey, this is what I feel like would be helpful to share. And as I walk into the building and hear how much you guys are praying and seeing the prayer group before this, I'm encouraged, but Pella wasn't there, okay? And so before I give some details to what that looks like for us now and why I would share on prayer on a Sunday morning to people who most likely understand the need for prayer, I want to give you and I a little bit of a history lesson. So you don't think this is just coming out of left field, but to understand the systematic approach and understanding all things that we can see in all of our history, the biblical history of prayer. If you're not aware, prayer actually starts in Genesis 4, verse 26. This is what it says. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Of course, Before this, Adam and Eve are talking with the Lord, but all prayers before this, God uh, initiated. What you find in Genesis 6 is a conversation. Everything you know about the flood started with prayer. We see in Genesis 12, Father Abraham leaving his family starts with the statement, the Lord said to Abraham, and they spoke in prayer. In Genesis 18, Abraham then goes to bat for the most wicked city ever known to man, Sodom. He actually advocates on their behalf, leveraging the system. Imagine a God who is perfect and holy and big and powerful. And now he sees what the Sodomites are doing. He sees what these people are doing. And Abraham goes, what if, God, I found 50? Okay, Abraham. Okay, I know this. What if I found 40? Okay, Abraham. No, what if I found 30, 20, 10? God, what if I found 10 people in the city? Okay, Abraham, if you find 10 people, I won't destroy the city. As the story goes on, we actually see in Exodus chapter 2, and I quote, and they cried for help because the people of God were in subjugation and slavery. God answers in a conversation in prayer in the next chapter with the burning bush and Moses. We get the law through prayer. As Moses speaks to God, as a man speaks to his friend, in Exodus 18 through 20, uh, Moses comes down from the mount and he gives the people the law all through prayer. We see the same situation as God is, or is with, uh, Moses is with God in prayer. God tells Moses he sees what's going down uh, on, on the mountain, and the people of God are actually worshiping a golden calf, okay? He's so upset, he says, I'm done. I've given them the system. I'm wiping them off the earth. This is how Moses responds through prayer. But Moses prayed to the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, turn from your fierce wrath and repent of this evil against your people. A lot to unpack there, but here's God's response in verse 12. And God changed his mind, told you. This, is, this, this, this big God... Now, there's a ton to impact, unpack, unpack on all that stuff. So may, I might have created more counseling sessions with Rich in that moment, but there's a lot going on there, okay? The, the, the reality is it's through prayer that we see this, and, and we're not done. We see as the story goes on, we, I mean, what would we have in David outside of a shepherd boy giving us the prayers and the Psalms? What would we have in the, the, the book of Job outside of the four or five last chapters in Job as Job and God respond and have a conversation in prayer? Job leverages the system as he's being rebuked. We have the prophets again and again and again. The cycle, the Lord speaks to the prophets. The prophets speak to the people. The people cry out to their God. We see this over and over and over again. And if you think that it ends in the Old Testament, you're wrong. The New Testament is even more emphatic on the the purpose, the intention of leveraging the system as a people, image bearers of God, to cry out and use this system of prayer to an all-powerful God who does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. He opens this space for us to be able to communicate. In the New Testament, we see the Lord's Prayer. I mean, if there's ever a prayer to pray, you want to pray the Lord's Prayer, 
right? The Lord's Prayer. We see prayers of uh, being filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. According to Luke eleven thirteen. how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? Here it is, to those who ask. We see prayers of vindication. And will not God vindicate his elect and cry out for, uh, to, um, will God not vindicate his elect to those who cry out to him day and night, according to Luke 18, 7. We see prayers for wisdom, according to James 1, 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him, here it is, ask God who gives generous, uh, generously. In Matthew 9, th- uh, 38, we see prayers for workers. We we're talking about uh, uh, evangelism training for people to go out starts with prayer. He says this, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest and then to pray for those who go out. In Acts 13, 2 through uh, two through three says this, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work. Then after, here it is, fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. In John 17, we see prayers of unity. In Colossians chapter one, verse nine, we see that we can pray for God's will. I mean, think of how insane that sounds. Think of how big of a deal is uh, a God is, how many thousands of ways he's even working right now, and you can go, God, please tell me your will. Please reveal to me what you're doing right now. I need, I, need some in, I need to know here. Please help me. Is this what you want me to do? We see those kind of prayers. We see prayers in, in Ephesians, prayers of hope. We even see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, different kinds of prayers. We see, first off, I, I then urge you with supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. If you were to do a study on the word pray or prayer, depending on your translation that you have and different codexes that are used, you're going to see somewhere between 350 and 500 accounts of the word prayer that appears, depending on what translation uh, that you have. And, and just so you know, in the entire Bible, there are 650 prayers written down for us to read, 25 of which are God incarnate praying. Prayer is clearly a big deal. Now, you and I may ask, okay, well, that's great, but I'm not done because our brothers and sisters know this. They're not the first ones to ever be told Pray without ceasing, as we'll read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. And so they hear this, and then we don't just have the Old Testament, we don't just have the New Testament, but we have a lineage after that of brothers and sisters who took God up on this command. If you're not aware, you know, there's something called the patristic uh, era before that, right after the apostolic era. Um, Andrew McGowan, who wrote in his book, uh, Ancient Christian Worship, says this, there is a clear threefold prayer time for the early church. The early church and this is one of my studies right now. I'm getting a doctorate in ministry at Phoenix Seminary. And my area of study is spiritual disciplines in the early church. Meaning, I wanted to ask questions. How did Augustine read his Bible? What did it look like for Origen to fast? And so prayer is part of that. One of the chapters of my final project, my dissertation that I have to write, is on prayer. And when you read some of this stuff, it's, it's no surprise to see again and again, two things are happening. One, the church prayed three times a day. Two, they prayed the Lord's Prayer every time they gathered. Just so clear. We see this in the uh, patristic era. Origen, later Cyprus, said the same thing. He said, a first set of instructions for daily prayer begins. The faithful, as soon as they wake up and have risen, before beginning work, shall pray to God and then hurry to their work. The Didache, which is like a, uh, a manual for early Christians. This was like the playbook for how early believers worked all this out. It says, say the Lord's Prayer three times a day. In the Middle Ages, at the beginning, you hear from uh, Gregory the Great, the contemplative life is to cleave only to the maker, that the mind may now take no pleasure in doing anything, but here it is, but having spurred all cares to our creator. Thomas Akempis, at the end of the Middle Ages, said, what most of all hinders heavenly consolation is that we are too slow in turning ourselves to prayer. 
As we hit the Reformation and post-Reformation, guys like Zwingli said this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Martin Luther himself gave us a little bit more practical advice in saying this, it is a good thing to let prayer be the first business of the morning and the last at night. Guard yourself carefully against those false, deluding ideas which tell you, wait a little while. I'll pray in an hour. First, I must attend to this or that. Such thoughts, get away from, uh, such thoughts get you away from prayer into other affairs which so hold your attention and involve you that nothing comes of prayer of that day. That's just true. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I've experienced that. Even the Puritans, as Pastor Rich came up and read from the Valley of Vision, all of 2023, we used the, the, the Valley of Vision for uh, a prayer book for us at Pella as we pray a corporate prayer every single Sunday. And the Puritans were masterful at understanding this big God that has asked, him, asked us as people to come to him. And they wrote down so many of these prayers. Listen to what the Puritans uh, had to say. As they, they, um, their goal, they're called the Puritans because they want to bring the, the purity of Christianity back to the church and following the word. Andrew Murray, who has written a ton on prayer, if you ever want to look up a name. Nothing so reveals a defective spiritual life in a person or a congregation as the lack of unceasing prayer. Prayer is the pulse of the spiritual life. It is the great means by which we receive the blessing and power of heaven. Persevering and believing prayer creates a strong and abundant life. But I'm not done. John Owen says, if we would talk less and pray more, things would be better than they are in the world. Charles Spurgeon is called the great last Puritan. Though I love Spurgeon. I don't think that's the case. He's too far down the timeline. He said this, not to pray because you do not feel fit to pray is like I, saying like, I will not take medicine because I am too ill. Listen to this. Pray for prayer. Prayer yourself into a praying frame. Say that five times fast. His point is, I don't feel like praying. Well, then pray that you'd want to pray, right? Even as you continue to go on, there's something called the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards, who's kind of a catalyst for all this, says this, it is God's will through his wonderful grace that the prayers of his saints should be one great principal means of carrying out the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. I.e., what he's saying there is, as God continues to work in his kingdom, it's through the prayer of his people. Karl Barth says, wherever there is the grace of God, human beings pray. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, always respond to every impulse to pray. The impulse to pray may come when you're reading or when you're battling with the text. I would make an absolute law of this. Always obey such an impulse. Where does it come from? It is the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just the Old Testament, guys. It's, it's not just the New Testament. Our brothers and sisters for 2,000 years have not just been people of prayer, they've been relying on it. They, they, they've understood that nothing we can do, no matter how many churches we plant, how many people we send overseas, how many people are baptized, it doesn't matter. Without prayer, it's all vanity. Without going to the Lord, who's all-powerful and all-sovereign, without understanding this relationship, we are wasting our time. We're wasting our time. And this is where I, I bring myself into this moment because most of you as believers are going, no, I know, I, I know I should pray. And this is where at the beginning of the year I had to repent. And it wasn't some false version of humility or false piety. Genuinely, um, as elders, we felt like we had let our congregation down. We, we had for three years, God had been doing some amazing stuff, but not, had not made um, prayer a priority. You would not have walked into Pella on a Sunday morning and seeing people pray. And we, we had to repent of that. Like, Lord, this is such, if, if, we, are, if we are to be reliant on prayer, then, then what are we doing? Actually, this is what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. And so in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, when, when it says, pray without ceasing, 
we should pray, not just because we're people of prayer, we're relying on prayer, but the reality is God is moving through those prayers. And I love what, uh, it's Annalise who came up and got baptized, right? Is that right? She came up and she's like, there's, there's a self-sufficiency and a pride that comes along inherently. Your flesh always thinks that it can do it. But listen, if you want generational change, and I mean that, like all of us are going to be gone in 100 years. You know that, right? All of us are going to be gone. In 500 years, nobody's going to know Pella. Nobody's going to know Center Church. The only thing that matters is the kingdom of God. The only, that's the only thing that matters. And for us to go to the king of that kingdom and to go, Lord, use us in this moment. We are feeble, as we read in Isaiah. We're like grass being blown away. It's so quick. But you, but you, and we leverage that system. This is why Ian e. Bounds, who also has a ton to say about prayer, he says the life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. Nobody reads the book of Acts. And I know you guys care about the Bible here. You want to be, be Bible-believing Christians. Live out New Testament Christianity. Nobody reads the book of Acts and goes, they were kind of praying people. When you think of our brothers and sisters in the book of Acts, they prayed. So you want to be a Bible-believing Christian, you want to follow the, 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 uh, uh, the pattern of the New Testament, then pray, then pray. This is why, all of that to say, this is why 1 Thessalonians 5.17 matters. The command here to pray without ceasing matters. Now we can finally get to our text. There we go. Okay, how about that? If you already have an open, look to 1 Thessalonians 5.17, as I've already said it. And if you feel like three words is a short verse to break down, you'll be surprised to know in Greek it's only two words. Um, Rich and I, he had said we met in, in, uh, in Greek, so I got to sound smart and quote some Greek here. And really, that's pretty much how we got to fill our time, okay? So, so, so listen to, to these two short words in Greek. The first word, pretty easy, prosuximai. I sound really fancy when I sound, say that, okay? Prosuximai, if you can just slow it down. Um, the first part of the word pro is to go towards, okay? Now, uh, umai, like that, that word umai, actually is the word wish. Now, this is tricky because pagans still today use this, right? If you ever have a kid make a wish, Ask yourself when you tell your five-year-old to make a wish, who are they talking to? Like, I wish that like, I can get a, you know, a brand new game or something like that. I want to go, who, who are, are you talking to the universe? Are you talking to yourself? Are you saying it aloud for us? No, because that word is actually pray. That's how the pagans leverage that word. But we're putting the two words together towards, we understand it's not just a nebulous towards out to nothing, but it's towards God, and that's how we get our word pray, prosuximai. We have this idea of a pray. Now, uh, it is a command. It's what's called in Greek an imperative. What's interesting, it's in the middle tense. And so when you hear this pray without ceasing, God is, when I say it's in the middle tense, God is say, telling you to do something that he plans to do with you. Meaning, in English, we have an active tense. I can throw the ball over there, right? So if I have a ball and I throw it to Pastor Rich, I'm the active agent in that. Rich is the passive agent. He's receiving the ball. But in Greek, we have something called the middle. It's both active and passive, meaning we're playing a part in this, but also God is doing something in us as we do it. Does that make sense, right? So, so this, this verb here is an imperative, pray. And then the next word here that, that we can see is without ceasing. Um, some of you guys' Bible say continually. It's just, uh, the word is, uh, aduleptos, uh, and I can never, you, if our Greek professor said, just say it with confidence and you sound really smart. So aduleptos, that's how you say it, right? Um, now, do, uh, dia is the first word there. Dia um, means like a cross, and leptos means a gap. So what it's saying is, adia leptos is the idea that 
you are to leave a gap. But in Greek, when you put an alpha in front of a word, it negates the word. So what it's saying is, quite literally in the BDAG, don't leave a gap. That's what it's saying, okay? So don't leave a gap. So pray without leaving a gap. That's what we have. That's one verse. Easy to memorize. Pray without ceasing. All the characters I mentioned in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, our brothers and sisters hear this sentiment and they go, I'm in, I'm in. Now, I never want to soften a text, ever. But it does bring into question, how do we do this? How do we pray without leaving a gap? How do we pray without ceasing? Because even though I don't want to soften the text, there, the totality of this verse goes, okay, I mean, honestly, like to, to live it out, like do I not sleep? Do I not eat? In every conversation, I'm like praying in the back of my mind, trying to both pray and be in the conversation. How do we do this? And this is where it's important to do good exegesis is always read the Bible through the Bible. That's what you want to do. And there's verses that give us the same sentiment. For example, in Colossians 4.2, it says, devote yourself to prayer. Okay, I can understand what it's saying there. Romans 12.12, be faithful in prayer. That makes more sense. Ephesians 6.18, be alert and keep going in prayer. Now, I kind of a, a well-rounded with those three verses, also with 2 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. I can see there needs to be this kind of devotion to prayer, that prayer matters enough to be always at the front of my mind. And so, to be helpful, I want to get, be able to give you five things that I think you can live this out, how we can live this out, some of which you guys are doing already. And Pella is now just, we've uh, devoted 2024 to um, a, a year of prayer for us, but, but you guys have been living out. But I think there are five things that can be helpful for you to be able to do this, okay? Number one, when we read Pray Without Ceasing, we should pray in private, Okay? I'm mindful of uh, Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel goes and prays uh, on his own. Jesus frequently leaves the crowd, and he goes and speaks with his father. As a matter of fact, he says in Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So pray. You, you devote yourself to individual prayer. But don't just devote yourself to individual prayer. That's one. Number two, pray with others. Be devoted to corporate prayer as well. Uh, I, I think of Matthew 18, 19, and 20, more of a famous uh, verse that loves to be taken out of context, where two or three are gathered in my, ma uh, my name, there I am in the midst of them. Or according to Acts chapter 4, verse 24, and I quote, they lifted their voices together to God. Even the Lord's Prayer that we talked about before, that's written all in the plural. The pronouns that are used there in the plural give us our daily bread. So pray as an individual, pray with others. Number three, have set si uh, times of prayer, but also, and this is all part of three, but also that kind of, that, that drive in the car kind of prayer. What, what I mean by that is, the best way I can explain this is if we're to pray without ceasing, think of it, you know, those of you who are married, I'll take my wife Candace, in my relationship, we've been married almost for 20 years, let me tell you what doesn't work, okay? Let's say we have a set side of time for a date night, Sunday night, which we do. Every Sunday night we have a date night. And she comes to me on Tuesday, and I go, she's like, hey, I want to talk to you about this. And I go, oh, da, 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 da. we'll talk Sunday night, okay? How well do you think that's going to go, right? Okay? Like, no, we only talk on our set side of time. But at the same time, if, if we didn't have a date night, and all we did is have a casual conversation, kind of in passing, maybe talking in the car, but we never had a set side of time for us, that would also be a problem. And so it's not just pray privately, pray corporately, but also have set um, times aside for you to pray and also yes continue to do the car prayers and pray uh, on your walks and pray and pray and pray right so there's three things that i think can be helpful number four 
the way, one of the ways that we can pray without ceasing, we should pray without ceasing, is pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. Now, I know the word earnestly is not a word that we use too often in the English uh, language, so let me explain it a little bit more. When I say pray earnestly, I'll leverage, uh, again, Grudem actually gives this example in his systematic theology. Uh, he says it like this. I'll use uh, Rich. So I say, hey, Rich, uh, the first way, hey, we should do dinner sometime. We should do dinner sometime. And I kind of leave it at that. This is this kind of casual, open invitation. It's very similar to, Lord, I pray for the world, okay? Which is fine. We should do dinner sometime. There's a second way that I could just, Rich, I, man, I, we should do dinner Friday night, right, on my way out. It's kind of quicker, maybe more particular. It's the same way I'd pray maybe for my kids. But I don't know, is he supposed to text me? And am I going to text him? I, I don't know. We don't know if we're going to figure it out, right? And there's a third way that, 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 that I can do this invitation. I go, hey, what are you doing Friday night? We, we should get our families together. Are you free on Friday at like 6 o'clock uh, to be able to do dinner together? I'm not really asking. I've, I've already spent too much time with you. But you understand, right? Okay. Right? He could tell by my posture, my tone of voice. There's a sense of like, hey, like, I'm waiting here. He's, he's waiting for me and him. We're going to bust out our calendars right there. There's a sense of, Lord, she's far off, and I don't know what to do. I'm just going to sit here and wait. Please save her. Lord, I found out he has cancer, and I feel like it's too early. I feel like, please, please, please heal him. There's a sense of earnestness in the prayers that we read from our Puritan brothers and sisters, there's a sense of earnestness that we read in Scripture. For example, prayers of Hannah, like, I can't have a child. Lord, please, please. And one of the ways we can pray earnestly, is, or pray continually, is pray earnestly. Number five, pray with faith. Now, this one is problematic because some of us in the room have allowed the wolves of Joel Olstein and Creflo Dollar to steal these kind of sentiments. But this is a biblical precedent that the, the God of the universe has opened this invitation in the system of prayer and asked us to pray in faith, have faith on him. If you don't believe me, listen to Mark chapter eleven twenty four. 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you will receive it and it will be yours. In Matthew 21, 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. James 1, 6, ask in faith without doubting. Grudem says it well. He says, biblical faith is never kind of wishful thinking or vague hope that does not have a foundation to rest upon. It is rather trust in God himself based on the fact that we take him at his word and believe what he has said. Pray in faith, believe. And, and man, this is like, I grew up in the charismatic world, and so I've seen all the terrible um, actions that have been uh, taken advantage of, of the Bible in this. I absolutely have seen it and have discussed, I'm disgusted with myself to ever be part of it. But I can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I see texts like this, and I go, Lord, you tell me to pray and to pray in faith. I believe that you can save my children. I believe you can. So please, Lord, please save them. Let them know you. Let them have godly children. Please. And I believe you can do it. I truly believe you can do it. I have faith in who you are. I'm not strong enough. I'm not big enough to do this. But you can save them through your regenerating power. Please save them. Have faith and believe he can do it. This leads us to three things that I would encourage you to be aware of when it comes to prayer. If we are to pray without ceasing, it's, mind, it's good for us as Christians to be mindful of three things. Number one, um, I'm not trying to sound like William Wallace when I say this, but you've got to understand prayer is war against sin. Okay? You are asking God to um, 
change or work in something that sin has captured. Uh, maybe the best way to say it is uh, there's this uh, article by a guy named David Wells. Uh, the article's uh, entitled Rebelling Against the Status Quo. Here's what he says. He says, what then is the nature of petitionary prayer? It is, in essence, rebellion. Rebellion against the world and its fallenness, the absolute undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. It is the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every uh, interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. Or, to put it another way around, to come to acceptance of life as it is, to accept it on its own terms, is to surrender a Christian view of God. Meaning, they're never going to know Jesus. They're never going to know him. They're too. Are you crazy? Do you remember how far off you were? And your grandmother was praying for you. And so, so you stand there to go, no, that's just hopeless. It's never, is to accept the fact that they are lost, they are blind by the devil, this devil who has schemes that we are to pray against, that this devil has trapped them and they're unsavable, is absolutely ludicrous, is to accept the world on its own terms. But we believe the kingdom of God is big enough to go to war against those schemes. And so, Lord, save them. Open their eyes. Let them see the beauty of the gospel. Give them a heart to believe, a mind to understand. That's to go against the status quo. Number seven, to talk about prayer, we have to address the fact that there are times where prayers are not answered. And before you give me the whole Christian super, you know, you wear a cape and all that stuff, like, no, they're, they're, you know, they're answered, they're just answered with a no. I get it. I understand what you, but you know what I mean. When you pray for that person who is 32 years old and has cancer, you feel like this is too early. Lord, please save them. And I get it. We're to step back and go, Lord, in your sovereignty, you know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. But why would you allow this to go on? That's a question that constantly comes up. And so when we talk about prayer and having faith, this is all real. And at the same time, we acknowledge there are times when God does not answer our prayers, or at minimum, if you want to at least say it this way, does not answer the prayers we would want him to uh, answer them. He doesn't answer what or give us what we're asking for in petitionary prayer. And to that, I don't know what to say exactly. I think there are two things that come to mind. I mean, there, there could be, I mean, according to Scripture, it could be according to Romans 8.26, um, you're not praying how you ought. According to James 4.3, you're not praying according to his will. According to James 1, uh, you're maybe being double-minded. Uh, those are all very possible things. I don't always know, but I, I think I know there are two things to be true when it comes to the topic of God not answering the prayers you want him to, the way you want him to. Number one, as long as God is God, um, it has to be this way. As long as we're not God and he is, there's always going to be things that he's doing that we're not aware of. Okay? If we were aware of everything, then we would be God. And so, there's some semblance of our understanding as believers that we're going to a God who does know everything and does have uh, the working of his will intertwined in all things. And so because he's God, I go, okay, I need to settle in with that. Number two, when your prayer goes unanswered, you join a long, long, long list of um, passionate believers who've had their prayers go unanswered. So I'd encourage you to take um, solace in that. What I mean by that, according to Galatians 4.4, 4, uh, Israel prayed for literally hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. Imagine entire generations dying off. Entire generations, Lord, send your Messiah, send your Messiah. And according to Galatians 4.4, 4, then was not the time. If you go read Revelation chapter 6, in verse 10, the martyrs, people who have died for Jesus, 
Lord, can you now bring judgment? And the Lord says in the next verse, no, now is not the time. I mean, maybe the craziest one that's never been answered, at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with this thorn in his flesh. You know how it's described? If you go back and read the second, uh, at the end of 2 Corinthians, the thorn in his flesh is described as a demon, okay? So if there's ever a prayer that you would go, he's probably going to answer this one. Lord, get this demon away from me. The Lord says, no, 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 no. My, gracious, my grace is sufficient for you. But maybe more than anyone else, we look at our Lord and Savior in the garden. So, Lord, Father, if this cup can pass for me, and here, here's a statement, but your will be done. And this leads us to our eighth thing, because it's not just Jesus uh, in his obedience as our example, that we can look to him in giving us the Lord's prayer, we can look to him and how he prayed even when um, he went to the cross and clearly at least displayed a sense of, I don't want this cup, but um, if this is what you have for me, I will follow your will. It's, it's not just that he's an example, Check this out. It's because he was successful in that moment and was obedient in that moment that he's the very reason we can pray. Now, this is, this is the piece that we go full circle now because here's what's happened. From the jump in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, when I said the system was put in place, there was something always required for the door to be open for the system to work. Prayer did not work because here's what we know. God is not just big and powerful who does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. He's big and powerful, and he's holy. And nothing should be allowed in his presence. Otherwise, we'll, we'll use language of contamination takes place. Of course, you understand what I mean. That's an oversimplification. But, but he is holy. And so there needs to be, and if you're not a believer, you may not understand this, there needs to be these atoning works. So he gives them the law, and he gives them all these uh, rituals, if you will, to use simple language, to be able to go before him in the system in prayer. So something has to be sacrificed and offered there's scapegoats involved and priests involved. And so the only way the system can be leveraged in the Old Testament is if the proper things are done first. And now you and I jump in our Honda and we just start praying. And the only reason you can do that is because a system that had been put in place by God was also provided a way in his son. And that the substitutionary atonement that took place, his blood that we just sang about, covers our sin so even though we were sinners we're now declared saints you're literally going to the father and he sees his son imagine how much favor jesus has with his father that's how much favor you have that's crazy so he's not just our example he's the reason our great mediator this is actually exactly what first timothy 2 5 says there is one god and there's one mediator between god and men the man, Jesus Christ. And you know what this mediator tells us? This one who provided blood for us to be able to go before him. He says this, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's take him up on that. Let's go before the Lord and take him up on that. Let us be people of prayer. Let's pray.